0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 909. To begin today's show, David Lorela sits down with John Sadak, the new play-by-play broadcaster for the Cincinnati Reds. They discuss John's journey from going to college to study astrophysics, to a career calling games in the minor leagues, to this life-changing opportunity in the TV booth. John also shares his thoughts on things like reaching the Reds' fan base and his respect for the play-by-play position.
1: Yeah. You know, this opportunity is just so significant. It it can make me emotional when I think about it. I struggle sometimes with trying to both embrace and separate that, to to try to maintain professionalism, but also to, to kind of recognize and show the real humanity and humility that comes with it.
0: After that, Dan Zimborski welcomes Dr. Meredith Wills to the program. With the recent news on how MLB plans to augment the baseball, they discuss Dr. Wills' own research into the subject, including in a piece recently run at Sports Illustrated. They also talk about the importance of player input on the ball changes, as well as a potential nickname for this so-called deadening.
2: I'm not sure this ball, it may be deadened technically according to like it coming off the bat more slowly, but I also think it might be more lively in that it travels farther. So I'm wondering, I keep thinking of this as maybe this is an undead ball. Could we call this the zombie ball?
0: In the final segment, David Alorila returns to talk to left-handed journeyman Derek Loop. Loop has pitched all over the globe, including recently in the Caribbean series. They talk about things like pitching in crazy ballpark environments, from Lancaster to Japanese indie ball, as well as the great fans to be found abroad. Loop also shares some insight into his baseball claim to fame, his impressive pickoff numbers, and the minors.
3: And you were not purposely falling behind hitters to use your pickoff move. Oh, you?
4: I absolutely was. I was definitely throwing ball one to set up my... I, I'd have my perfect thing, I'd do my, my terrible pickoff move... And then i do my, my good leg lift pickoff move. And if I didn't get him with that one, I was going to slide step a pitch ball ball one home so I could slide step, pick the guy off. And I, I that worked, I mean,
0: like clockwork. It was, if it was a new guy or a team that didn't really know me very well, it worked every single time. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. Have you checked out our new dark mode feature over at Fangraphs.com? It is available to all members and allows for a less bright experience while browsing our ad-free website. I highly recommend it. Enjoy the show.
3: Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is John Sadak, the new TV play-by-play voice of the Cincinnati Reds. That has a pretty nice ring to it, doesn't it, John?
1: Oh my goodness, it, it still doesn't feel real to have my name associated with a title like that. and I'm not sure if it will until the first game actually arrives.
3: Which is coming up hopefully soon, you know, we're, you know, bated breath breath for all of us. This is certainly a dream job for you, I know, with all the time you spent in the minors. But at the same time, it's not what you grew up wanting to do. I, I believe that you are actually a math nerd, not an, an aspiring broadcaster.
1: That's true. Uh, in, in my very nascent years and my, my super young youth, I wanted to be a pro ball player, and I quickly realized I was not nearly good enough to even start on my rec league team and like the local little league, let alone be a pro ball player. And uh, my only varsity letter in high school was on the math team. And when I looked at my career aspirations, at first I wanted to be an electrical engineer. Then I took an electricity class and I aced the tests, but the light dimmer switch I was tasked with still doesn't work to this day. I had no practical aptitude. And I wanted to study astrophysics. I loved science fiction. I loved science. I loved space. I, I loved high level math. When I took my SATs, that's what I put down as my only choice of desired major. So all the college letters I got were related to astrophysics. And then the more I looked into it, I'd have to get a terminal degree. I'd have to be in college until my mid or late 20s. No matter what help I'd get, I'd come out with a mountain of debt. And uh, the money relation, in the relation to that debt, along with the workload, uh, you didn't really do a lot of the nerdy research stuff that I found so intriguing. You, you spent most of the time soliciting for grant funding or working another job field adjacent to kind of keep yourself afloat in hopes that maybe one week every two years, you could do the nerdy research stuff that I found so tantalizing. And uh, I, I was doing a presentation for my high school AP history course on race relation in 20th century America. And the crux of it was, did Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier influence or reflect America? And to that end, uh, the the seminal you know piece of the research was the arthur ash extended interview when he was named sportsman of the year by sports illustrated and it just so happened in that same issue was a big spread on espn sports center and it described all the jobs the people there had including the lowly life of the production assistant entry level making no money working 90 hour weeks doing everything nobody else wanted to do and i fell in love because in that moment it crystallized that I could work in sports, and I didn't care how much money I would make. And when I read the life of the PA, I said, I know I can do that job. I know I can get that job. And then it opened my eyes to, if I could just get in doing that, then while the math is terrible about being on the air, that would be my goal. And if I didn't get on the air, I'd be happy doing anything in sports. Uh, The idea of being an editor or a producer or a camera person or a graphics guy all of it, all of a sudden, was this whole new world that I, I never recognized existed.
3: Wow. <laughs> and we'll get a little into some of what you have done prior to this job. But first, with your math nerdiness, I think math nerdiness is a word, hyphenated word, <laughs> can we expect to hear much appreciation for analytics in your broadcasts?
1: I think so, yes. Yeah, and I think that's the balance that is the the greatest challenge to try and forge. I think there's great storytelling depth and and pure awareness of the game and feel for and anticipation of what can and should happen based on analytics. At the same time, you need to recognize there are giant segments of your audience that doesn't even care to learn about it. So to me, that's the feathery touch that you never are going to be pitch perfect on, but you're going to strive for is you, you want to educate your audience and you also want to speak to those that quite frankly, know more and better than I do anyway, but kind of speak in their language. And at the same time, you don't wanna push away, especially the older fan, you don't wanna categorize, but I think it skews a little bit along age lines that isn't as informed and some don't care to be informed. So I think the best way we can find a path to use it as a storytelling vehicle on what to predict or anticipate or react to what happens and, and use it in measured amounts, uh, hopefully we can find that sweet spot and and hopefully I educate myself along the way there's a lot I don 't know that I need to lean on guys like Chris Welsh and and others you know nationally and, and regionally to help me learn what matters most and how to use it.
3: Chris is, of course, the analyst that John will be joining on the Reds broadcast. We probably should address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that you are replacing Tom Brenneman, who lost the job for, I guess, regrettable reasons, we could say. you know, Can you share your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that whole situation just demonstrates the depth of this job, the significance of it, the the weight that it carries. In a positive way, you know, for for everyone. And this is a, a sport. This is a life that I view as one that needs to be inclusive. I, I want everyone to be a Reds fan. I want everyone to be involved. And when you live a life that is, you know, essentially is a public figure and serving in a role like this, you you have a, a sense of responsibility, uh, and that's something I don't take lightly at all. And it also shows how for for anyone, due to a variety of reasons it can go away incredibly fast. Nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is, is given. And, and I recognize that just through 15 years of being in the minors. Uh, and then many dark days when I honestly thought an opportunity like this would never come, not for lack of, of effort, not for lack of ability, just circumstantial because they're, they're so precious. There are only a handful of these positions and it's a, it's a, a, a sacred role to, to hold for a fan base and for a sport that, uh, that I treasure and that that I hope that I will serve in the best way possible,
3: you mentioned fifteen years. We first became acquainted when you were calling games for the Wilmington Blue Rocks. I believe it was two thousand six, and if I remember incorrectly, I reached out to you because I wanted to talk to a promising young pitcher named Clay Buckles. Mm-hmm. You had some very good players, you know they were uh the Blue Rocks were a Red Sox affiliate. They were obviously a Royals affiliate for a while. But I know that with Boston, you had Buckles. I believe you had Ellsbury, maybe Jed Lowry.
1: Indeed, yeah. And uh, Bryce Cox, who I actually thought was the most talented of that bunch, uh, at a Rice University, had a filthy slider. Justin Masterson joined the team later in the year. Jeff Corsaletti, Brian Pritz. Uh, that was a super talented team. And that was probably as close to a team as I've ever been due to the age proximity that I had to the players. My first year as a full season announcer, the coaching staff was younger. Chad Epperson, who's now the catching coordinator for the Red Sox, Mike Cather, who went on to become an advanced scout and later a Triple A pitching coach and pitching coordinator in other organizations, Dave Joppy, who ascended up to the Triple A ranks uh, as a hitting coach, uh, Brad Pearson, who's now the athletic trainer in the big leagues for the Red Sox, was the uh, uh, athletic trainer and strength coach on that team, and. And, and oddly enough, I had grown up a Yankees fan. And I had just come from the New York Yankees front office in, in an off-air role. I had worked for my boyhood favorite team, and now I'm with their biggest rival. And, uh, and we had just a fantastic time with that team that year.
3: So I think you had to be very careful about cheering for when you heard Yankees scores.
1: Particularly in that first week plus when I was there. I can vividly remember being at Frawley Stadium, home of the Blue Rocks, in the manager's office, and there were a bunch of Rovers in town. Uh, People that I was just meeting for the first time just getting to know and there was a I remember one night that there was a Yankees Red Sox game on the Blue Rocks game was over and I saw Derek Jeter steal second base and just beat a tag to to be in safe and I gave a a soft little fist pump and a kind of an understated muffled yes and I looked around the room and everyone jaws dropped are like what are you doing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was so wrapped up in the moment. I, I totally forgot where I was and, and that I was now working for a Red Sox team.
3: But you, of course, came to this very honestly. You have told me, John, that you were at Dave Rigetti's no hitter.
1: Indeed. I was there atop my father's shoulders, 4th of July, 1983. It's my first clear childhood memory. I I don't remember a lot of the game, but I remember when he struck out Wade Boggs for the final out. And my dad put me on his shoulders because everyone was standing and I couldn't see. And I was uh, rather crisply sunburnt. I remember being super tired and very thirsty. And I I remember that I had been complaining at one point that I wanted to go home. But then as the, the seventh, eighth and ninth innings arrived, He was describing to me, and I could feel the energy building in the stadium, what that meant. And I can remember the the fans going crazy all the way through, you know, the walks through the underbelly of Yankee Stadium and twisting down the mezzanine level and going out to to the car to drive back home. And the great oddity is the man who caught that game, Butch Weiniger was the hitting coach my first year in AAA when I was with the Yankees AAA team in Scranton-Wilkes-Barre. And I got to meet the man and and ask him firsthand about his memories and his accounts of that day and everything that followed.
3: Wow, no, that's great. And I can really understand the the no-hitter story because my daughter who is now in graduate school was at the Derek Lowe no-hitter with me, and it was the first game that she was there until the bitter end because she wasn't going to be leaving. (laughs) You do not leave a no-hitter. Right. You know, back to the whole New York thing, you were a big New York Rangers fan, I believe as well. You're a hockey guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I loved all sports. I love football, basketball, hockey, baseball, but the, the sport I played the most growing up was hockey. And my favorite single sports team of my childhood all time is, is still the 93 94 New York Rangers. I, I watched probably 85 90% of their regular season minutes every single playoff game. And I've re watched a lot of those playoff games many, many, many times. Mark Messier, Adam Graves, uh, before he was traded, you know, Mike Gardner, Tony Amani, uh, Brian Leach, Jeff Bookaboom, Mike Richter, John Van Beesbrook. I, I just I adore that team. And, and and the full circle nature that I've been incredibly lucky to enjoy. You know, my first trip to the big leagues, I got to fill in on New York Mets broadcasts and I worked my first game with Howie Rose, who had the legendary call of the Stephon Matteau double overtime game winner to beat the Devils in Game 7 of the Conference Finals. And I I spent probably an hour plus before my first Major League Baseball game, super excited to work that. But also picking Howie's brain for stories about Alexei Kovalov and Mike Keenan. And and I I was just in my glory. My childhood self was, was reborn in that moment.
3: Gary Thorne, of course, has had a great broadcasting career doing both hockey and baseball. Unfortunately, not returning to the Orioles this year, which, frankly, I can't understand. But hockey is a sport you really haven't done much of. You have done everything else.
1: Yeah, and and that was more circumstantial. Uh, When I finished with graduate school, I went to grad school because I I knew I wanted to do play-by-play, and I knew most of the full-time play-by-play jobs where I could go somewhere and pay for a place and to eat and, and all of that were in minor league baseball and minor league hockey. And I also knew the odds were just not great. So I loved both. So let's cast a wide net. And I applied to every job I could in both sports. And I applied for junior hockey jobs in Nebraska, Division II positions in Minnesota. Uh, For a long time, I kept a collection of this was, you know, early days of the internet, 2003. So email was common, but you'd usually get a physical rejection letter still at the time, if you got anything. A lot of times you heard silence. Uh, but I kept uh, probably 200 plus rejection letters over the year. And I, I used them as fuel. I mean, it was uh, it, it was kind of like the, you know, the Michael Jordan and I took that personal. Uh, <laughs> that was that for me. Every letter to me made me more energetic about the next step. And it just so happened that my, my first chances came in baseball. And as a result, you know, the, the way the calendar works, baseball works very cleanly and easily with doing football and basketball. Hockey kind of overlaps with everything in a way that if hockey's your primary job outside of a handful of one-off games, it's much more challenging to do the other sports.
3: Right, and Dan Hard, that Cincinnati fans know very well from, from Bengals games, used to be the broadcaster in A Pawtucket. And while I believe you just missed him when, when you were in Scranton, you would have been with Tommy Thrall in the Carolina League at the same time.
1: That's true. Yeah. So so Dan and I have crossed paths in other stops uh, when I've called either University of Cincinnati games, football or basketball or Cincinnati Bengals games uh, on the radio with Westwood one. I've been able to have time with him. He's been incredibly kind and generous. Uh, The first NCAA tournament I ever did was uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. It was the first ever site in the history of the tournament to have three games decided by one point that included the Bearcats playing an overtime game against Purdue. And he was incredibly generous then and has been ever since. Uh, he's among the many people that, that texted to offer his congratulations and, and help in transitioning to Cincinnati. And uh, yeah, Tommy and I were together for a year in high A in the Carolina League. He was with, uh, what was at the time, the Braves affiliate in Myrtle Beach. And I was with uh, the Royals affiliate at the time with Wilmington. And he grew up a Royals fan. So that, that was part of the conversation was, you know, he was excited to see the, the rising Royals prospects, Mike Moustakis, Eric Cosmer, Salvador Perez, you know, Mike Montgomery, Danny Duffy. So many of the Greg Holland were all coming through at that time. And he and I stayed in touch when he was in Quad Cities, when he was in Pensacola, uh, he ran some side hustle with a television station in the greater Pensacola area near Tallahassee. So if I would work Florida State football, he'd be there for the, the local television station. And uh and we'd kinda check in, you know, once a year. What's the latest with your career? How was your baseball season? What are you looking at going forward? What are you hearing? Uh sometimes with tape feedback. And and I was just elated when he got the Reds radio job because the guy's got immense talent. He's an awesome person. And I can crystal clear remember being in a rental car. I was on the road for college hoops, I was in the parking lot of a pharmacy. I had gone there to, to pick up some bottled water. And I was listening to Marty Brenneman's sign off and he was telling the Reds fans that Tommy was taking over and to embrace Tommy that that he was giving the seal of approval to Tommy and I texted him immediately be like oh my goodness like I, I that that's the greatest thing that could possibly happen you just got. Uh, an on-the-air full endorsement from the nearly half-century Hall of Fame voice of the team. Like, you are set in the greatest way possible uh, to offer him congratulations.
3: And a few years later, you got a phone call offering you a pretty pretty sweet job.
1: Indeed, yeah. You know, this opportunity is just so significant. It, It can make me emotional when I think about it. I struggle sometimes with trying to both embrace and separate that to, to try to maintain professionalism, but also to, to kind of recognize and show the real humanity and humility that comes with it. Yeah, I got the phone call about this job minutes before I was set to go on the air. I, I was ready to record an open for a college basketball game. And I got the call from my agent that he got the call from Fox Sports Ohio. And while I was beaming with excitement, I also had this pressing you know, necessity for my job and I, I thanked him profusely. You know, really small world. It just turns out that my agent is from my my hometown in New Jersey, and so we we share a lot of you know mutual background pieces. But I had to hurriedly get him off the phone because I needed to call my wife because I knew I only had 90 seconds until I had to be in the 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 room next door to record and open and try to get through a two hour basketball game. And and uh, that was probably the the happiest, the biggest smile, the biggest energy for for. I'm a pretty high-energy guy, as I think you can tell, and you've known over the years. That that was probably as, as high as I've ever been, calling a sports game.
3: And you've called games at a very high level, obviously, and you will in Cincinnati. You must have stories, John, horror stories from your times in the low minors, where maybe things just weren't working the way that they should have.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, there are many times that uh, between minor league sports and then, you know, low and mid-major collegiate sport, working largely on radio, certainly in the beginning, where power goes out or the phone line doesn't work or someone unplugs you inadvertently or the producer doesn't show up and you're wondering how you're going to get on the air and you're trying to find someone else to drive to the station, usually on a holiday, like that happened on 4th of July, that happened on Memorial Day. Being left by the bus, uh, that's happened over the years and and I have two recurring nightmares in my life. One is of a giant tsunami that I'm staring down that I cannot possibly outrun, and I'm just waiting for the 50-foot inevitable to crash down upon me. And the other is of being scheduled to do a game, and I'm either in the booth moments before being told go, or I'm, I'm, somewhere, I'm somewhere else and I'm not where I'm supposed to be getting a frantic phone call that I'm grossly unprepared or unaware of the broadcast. And it's, it's not nightly, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of good dreams. But the half dozen or, you know, dozen times a year I have a nightmare, it's usually one of those two scenarios. And that's also part of what fuels me to try to be as prepared as possible. Uh, number one, I think it's my job. You know, it's my responsibility that I take seriously. But I also vibrantly know the fear of not having that, even if it's just through the simulation of, of my nightmares.
3: And which fate would be worse, the tsunami or the not being prepared?
1: Definitely not being prepared because the tsunami, once that's over with, there's nothing else. (laughs) If it's the broadcast, then you got to live with that.
3: (laughs) This is a perfect segue. John, we have time for a few more questions. With all of the years that you spent calling games in the minors, what advice would you give for young broadcasters who are trying to someday fill your shoes? Not literally your shoes, I guess, but (laughs) the big league broadcaster shoes.
1: I think the biggest core elements are to get good, I think, in anything, but particularly at baseball play-by-play or any form of sport play-by-play, you've got to do it. it it's a repetition-based skill. There is a subjectivity to who is good and, and what makes them good, but the the core skills are built through repetition. Very, very few can put on a set of headphones and call a even a passable game in their first try. But a lot of folks, I think could be pretty good if they just do it a lot. And particularly in baseball, because the cliches are true that, you know, you see something new at the ballpark every day. It's unlike the other sports in that situations arise that you can't anticipate. So getting practice at expecting the unexpected and adjusting to it is its own skill. And and beyond that, and perhaps even more importantly, really in the big picture, is just reach out to as many people and places as possible. Uh, I don't like the word networking. It comes with a, a bit of a slimy used car salesman feel to it. I prefer to, to think of it as in terms of building connections and just reach out to people. People make decisions. Ultimately, your successes will come because a decision maker at some point likes You Now that could be because you call a great game. That could be because of your background. That could be because of, you know, similar acquaintances. That could be for a variety of reasons. You can't control or anticipate that, but you can control casting as wide a net as possible. And I think you always start with those that are familiar with where you are from, your part of the country, your region, your area, and reach out to people that you respect that you like that you think do a good job and point that out and don't write them saying I want a job write them saying I want to succeed this is who I am this is my story this is what I want to have happen I would love to hear your story I would love to hear your feedback on what I should do and and try to forge a relationship and maintain that relationship find reasons to contact that person and continue a line of communication because so often top of mind awareness means everything and most of the jobs that I've been lucky enough to to have in my life calling games I didn't see a posting somewhere and apply for it with a lot of them somebody called me Uh, not necessarily to offer me the job although that's happened too Uh, but just to make me aware that a position is or could be open and that only comes about if you're connecting with people because people make decisions
3: and i would be remiss as we are talking on monday afternoon that the great pedro gomez passed away far too young last night a uh, fantastic people person and as you know that's a huge part of of this job it's not networking it's being a good human being
1: It is indeed, you know, and he's someone that I, I never personally met. And yet, you know, we all, I think, feel like we know him, right. He was always bursting with a radiant smile and, and the piece that really, you know, got to me in the last day was seeing him with his son, uh, wearing the the Salem Red Sox Jersey. And, you know, that kind of crystallizes it because I've been to that stadium. I've seen those players and it, it just makes it feel so much more human. And, uh, it's really sad to see somebody that young, and uh, the positive comes from, I mean, what an avalanche of uh, of positivity that's come about in the wake of his passing from so many people that are graciously sharing stories about how awesome he was as a person. We all knew what a great reporter he was, but I, I think his humanity has been and will continue to be fleshed out in the days and years to come, and uh, and I think you're spot on. I mean, that's he, he is like one of the shining examples of of what being a, a good person and a hard worker can achieve.
3: And a favorite story of mine from Pedro's that he told me, that he has certainly told many people over the years, is he grew up in Detroit. His family had moved there from Cuba, and when he was very young, maybe four or five years old, his grandfather came over from Cuba to live with the family, and he didn't speak any English whatsoever but he was a huge baseball fan and he would listen to the great ernie harwell calling tiger games on the radio and he would then tell pedro in spanish exactly what was happening in the game i think wow. that's, a, that's a great story
1: wow that is that is fantastic and that is and that is the, you know the american dream it's it's just kind of encapsulated there you know all of us at some point are are descended from some form of immigrant that came here for a better chance
3: and the language of baseball translates into different languages I think is a big point of of Pedro's story. His father understood his grandfather understood exactly what was going on, not really knowing english
1: yeah it's a it's a, a a tremendous connecting force you know that's and to me that's what I think baseball has over any other sport and i I love all the sports, and there are positives to all of them that are unique and different. But baseball's very, you know, daily nature, you know, the, the the cliches about the analogy to life are incredibly spot on. And with every passing day and year that I live on this world and, and live as a baseball fan, that connection just gets solidified more and more and gets rooted deeper and deeper. It's, it's something that I, I think all of us needed tremendously last year and will need this year and beyond probably more than ever before. It's it's such a welcome distraction, a sense of family and of togetherness. And it, it demonstrates what, what life is, that you can do all the right things and you can fail and you can do all the wrong things and you could you know run into success now and then. But those that have the greatest success over the long span of time, you got to do the right things every day. And if you do that, uh, then you'll see that success translate with that work.
3: Very well said, and we are going to close, John, with me doing hopefully the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing because I'm going to put you on the spot with a little bit of Reds trivia. You, of course, did not grow up a Reds fan, you probably maybe know that the Reds swept the Yankees in the 1976 World Series. Who was the MVP of that series?
1: You know, actually, I uh I watched game four of the 76 World Series just the other day, and uh I watched a highlight video of the 75 series and then I just started game one of the 76 series. So I'm cheating a bit uh, because I I actually just in the last week of doing my research uh, was able to spend some time on it. Johnny Bench, who was uh, my mom's favorite player and something I knew as a kid. But I I have had underscored dramatically over the course of the last week when this uh, this news came out as she started gushing about uh, stories of 1970s baseball.
3: John, that is not cheating. That is called doing your homework, and I think that every Cincinnati Reds fan who is going to hear you this year appreciates hearing that, that you are you are going to go in prepared, not just with knowing who Joe, Joey Votto is, but also knowing the big red machine.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the greatest challenge is, uh, you know, it's going to be harder than ever to get to know... The players of today uh, due to COVID and whatever protocols are going to be in place I imagine we're going to be talking over Zoom far more than or entirely over being in person at least for a while Uh, but it's also a franchise that thankfully has a very rich long storied history and it's going to take a long span of time for me to get up to speed with the average Reds fan And, and in truth I'll probably be in pursuit of that every year that, that they'll have me as their announcer, uh, tr- trying to equal what the, the lifelong Reds fan already possesses.
3: And I think, uh, John, that will probably be for quite a lot of years, easy for me to say. I am David Lorelai. Once again, that was John Sadak. And thank you for listening to Fangrass Audio.
5: Hi, I'm Dan Zimborski, and you're listening to the Dan Zimborski Untitled Baseball-Related Segment of Fangraphs Audio. One of the subjects we talk a lot about in baseball is, well, baseballs. The way the equipment is constructed has a ginormous effect on how the game itself is played the baseball itself has become a controversial subject in recent years as baseballs fly out of parks and pitchers express displeasure with the inconsistency of the ball's construction. Meanwhile, Major League Baseball itself has been as seemingly opaque as possible, and in the rare instance in which they address the issue, they mostly act as if they're a small mom-and-pop business rather than the company that owns the company that makes the baseballs. For elucidation of the structure of baseballs, fans and players have an ally in Dr. Meredith Wills. Meredith is a PhD astrophysicist and data scientist who has spent much of her time in recent years trying to get to the bottom of baseball's construction conundrum. Meredith has also had her work published in The Athletic and right now in a piece by Stephanie Epstein that you can read at SI.com even as we speak. But after you listen to this, of course. And she's joining us now to discuss these issues and maybe even some of the nasty things the Sun has planned for us over the next 800 million years. Meredith, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Dan. I I appreciate it. Um, I should point out that the the SI article has some of the most amazing graphics I've ever ever seen. I, I didn't know they could do that with baseballs. So you can look at the pretty pictures while we're talking.
5: Oh, picture pictures are great. Mm-hmm. I love the editors who add in all the graphics later because I'm not great at graphics. I like tables of numbers and tables of numbers don't always look that pretty. Uh, so. When I worked for ESPN, I just throw this random spreadsheet, and they would make it look not terrible. And I was always so
2: happy about that. Yeah. What What's amazing with this study is generally I'm pretty good at communicating and translating what I want to say into a meaningful visual. This study did not lend itself (laughs) to that. I mean, just months of of dragging through and trying to figure out how to, you know plot things and make them more explicable. And this graphics department nailed it in a way that just, I'm like, yes, please. I, I'm so glad I get to use these. It makes sense to me now. And it's so nice that the editor I was working with, uh, he told me that generally when they put a story together, because it's in the magazine as well, like we actually have an eight page spread in the magazine, that's awesome. That normally they'll, he'll ask for more, the graphics to be cut slightly so he has more room for text in this case he's like nope that's it we're cutting the text (laughs) anything keep the graphics intact
5: well it's cool because people don't actually usually get to see the inside of a baseball (laughs) though for the average fan it's it's really kind of a mystery in a way because you know that it's a rawhide ball-ish thing with cork and some other stuff inside, but nobody really actually sees the inside unless they find, like, an old baseball that their dog chewed up. So, how the baseball works, that's that's not a subject that, you know, a lot of people really know on on a real substantive level, where they can actually dissect it the way you did. How, how, what inspired you to sit down and start dissecting baseballs?
2: There's sort of two parts to that. I guess the starting to take up our baseballs in general had nothing at all to do with uh, with science or research or in fact baseball really or at least not the game when i don't do science or you know things baseball related i also do knitting design which sounds weird but you know uh in fact it did that has helped as far as doing the data analysis with the baseballs because uh, it turns out that knowing about things like cotton and wool and how they behave that's fundamental to understanding a lot of the construction but anyway the reason i took apart my first baseball was that i knew there was yarn inside because most of the inside of a baseball is yarn and being a knitter i wanted to see if it was knittable. it does turn out to be knittable, and i had a discussion recently with somebody else while it is knittable, it is not easy to knit with those are two different things so if you want to learn to knit start with real yarn and after several years try baseball yarn but not before then. Yeah, so I uh I did realize in fact it was knittable and you know approached the Hall of Fame and I've already got I'm in the Hall of Fame for knitting, so they knew what I did and suggested, you know, this would be great. I could do original designs, and the Hall of Fame is a museum that's a, a 501c3. So, you know, it's not like MLB pays all their bills. And so the idea is you auction these off as fundraisers. And so originally I was just getting baseballs to get the yarn so that I could do the stuff with the hall of fame. And then we had the 2017 home run search. And suddenly I could make, you know, the idea that there might be science in there as well was something that intrigued me because people were looking for all different kinds tons of kinds of answers. You know, it was everything from, maybe it was the players to maybe it was the strategy that was being used as far as how people were trying to hit the ball to different aspects of the ball. Was it something about the, 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 the core or the pill, people did bring up aerodynamics. There were a lot of oh, global warming was my favorite. The climate change was somehow leading to more home runs. And <laughs> so uh but yeah, so you know I knew the interior of baseballs and I thought, great, uh let me take a look. And uh yeah, it turns out that there was something different with the, you know, 20, in this case 16, 17 versus 2014, because the home runs started going up in the second half of 2015. By the way, I have since confirmed that this is different between early 2015 and later as well. But it turns out that the laces were thicker on the later balls, which it helps to go back to the knitting. One of the ways that you figure out the thickness of something like uh, yarn is something called wraps per inch, which is you take a dowel and you wrap the yarn around it and see how thick it is based on how many wraps you get. And that's quite literally how I measured the laces, the thickness of the laces.
5: No, it's a very clever way to do it. Um, it must. It must have been pretty exciting because this is at the intersection of, of the of knitting, <laughs> physics, and baseball. I mean, it's hard to find that great an intersection
2: of interests. Mike Petriella put out a tweet last year that year before. Sorry that that I should. I wish I remembered it verbatim, but it was essentially that. I have a feeling that I may be like when I say uniquely qualified. I may literally be uniquely qualified for these studies (laughs) because i don't know of anybody else where that's like those are sort of like the three ways that i define my life and the three things in which i have you know expertise and yeah it's just kind of weird that i'm the person for some reason who it's not like anybody else is even trying to do these studies they're all expecting me to so here i am somebody's got to do them and i like doing them and i keep finding things so
5: Now, now I'm kind of curious, is there any mathematics related knitting? Like, have you ever, like, crocheted, like, a Lorentz manifold or something?
2: It's all math. Knitting by definition is math. I I wish we could find a way to use it in schools. Uh, and by the way, yes, there is a crochet pattern for the Lorenz manifold. Wow. I have not seen a knitting pattern. I'm serious. See, I want to learn to knit just to do that. Look at crochet Lorenz manifold. <laughs> yeah, I have to look this up now. Oh, no, what's, I thought you planted that because you knew. No, it was no, 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 no. I, I was just thinking of, wow i'm just surprised that's what you came up with no i mean for basic geometry and stuff you know increase decrease uh you know the fact that you have to do gauge and that vertical versus horizontal are two different ones but yeah you can actually make do do a search on klein bottle knitted hat you can make a four-dimensional hat and there'll be free patterns all over the place Ooh. so you can use it for hyper dimensionality i mean yeah math and knitting are totally together i mean i've, I've used I'm trying to think. I have a number of patterns. One, that a scarf, one I could think of, especially where the whole thing is, you know, is mathematically based. So,
5: see, I, I, I do not have the the dexterity, the fine dexterity to do that. I have trouble sewing on a button, so I don't think knitting is probably it's easier my... to
2: knit than sew on a button. Y- you think? Oh, definitely. Yeah.
5: Okay. Cause my button sewing, I I've had that come off. Like when I've been in public, it's been embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'd love, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love I'm looking, I'm looking at these Klein bottle knitting. Things. See, now you have me oh, on a knitting tangent. It's very <laughs> exciting.
2: Well, next time I see you, I will bring uh, needles and some extra yarn and we can sit down in the middle of the winter meetings. And I have been known to pull out my knitting while waiting for people at the winter meetings so this might not surprise people but we can sit down you know at whatever bar we're at over you know drinks at one in the morning and i can start teaching you how to knit, and it'll freak everyone out
5: yeah i have i have a friend she she does a, a lot of knitting as well and mm-hmm. uh when we were at the uh fangraphs event in staten island in 2016 uh, 16, i think it was she wanted to come along because she still doesn't quite understand what i do what did you do dan I, I I'm still not sure. I write about baseball and I get mad and I do numbers and stuff. That that's that's about what I do. But uh, okay, she
2: <laughs> okay. Wasn't sure there was more. I'm
5: sorry. No, that that that's pretty much all. Uh but uh we were at the event and she's not really into baseball. So during the whole game she was just quietly knitting to herself.
2: I well when I'm not keeping score, I definitely knit in baseball games. I mean there's no no harm in that at all. You know, by all means. It's it's a it's a great way to, you know Stitch and pitch exists for a reason because people do bring their knitting to the ballpark. I, I so, believe yeah. the Mariners had an event. Oh, I think, a couple most, of years ago. most teams. Well, maybe not most anymore, but yeah, the Mariners do. The Giants have a regular one. The Brewers do. I made the 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 big screen actually at the last stitch and pitch I went to at a Miller Park. So it's like that's my my you know fifteen seconds of fame on the on the big jumbotron. <laughs> so yeah, now, now, me speaking... with my knitting. now now
5: speaking of yarns baseball is spinning a bit of a yarn about the 2020 baseballs in their recent memo that leaked they said that there were you know different baseballs at the end of the season but they didn't they did not include them in 2020 but from the data that you presented in si when when you dissected it you found
2: that that didn't look like it was quite true can you can you explain that how would i put this First, the information in the memo came as no surprise because when we contacted them, uh, and I mean, you know how MLB is with this stuff, they you know we expected them to ignore or just to get a short statement. We did not expect them to tell us, Yeah, in fact, we did change the baseball, okay? Because it's not that changing the baseball hasn't happened before, but as far as I know, and I did, in fact, ask John Thorne. MLB historian about this to double check. There has literally in the history of Major League Baseball never been an instance where MLB has intentionally changed the ball and not told anybody about it. Whenever changes have been made in the past, people have been informed in advance, at the very least of them being used, if not of them being made at all so when they said this we're just like okay this is a very very big deal but pretty much everything that came up in that memo was something that was originally given to us in their comments so it was kind of strange because at the time you know they're saying these weren't not just that they weren't used in 2020 games but the manufacturing timeline is very strange in that it how would i put this Baseballs are manufactured year round. So, you know, 12 months of production basically. And what I found was for these balls that had changed and and even that's interesting because it sounds like they uh, lowered the coefficient of restitution by decreasing the tension on the winding of the inner layer. And yeah, that would absolutely lower the COR. Uh, On the other hand, they pulled enough weight off of the ball where it seemed likely that they might you know, be smaller, that there might be something that might have changed the drag as well, if it's a better way to put it before I sort of double down on it's definitely smaller. And when I looked, you know, first of all, those balls did show up in, t- in 2020 games, but also when I looked, I also found balls that were traveling farther, sorry to veer back. What was interesting with this was a lot of the discussion seemed to come back to this was a test run of some sort. These balls were not to be used in 2020. The problem with that is four months of production is a third of the year. It's a third of the production cycle, which one is hard to explain as a test run, even more so because the way I figured out the dates was the batch codes on the inside, which are just they're just inventory codes and I was able to crack those. Anything that has a batch code by definition, that means it is intended to be put in inventory. So a test wouldn't have a batch code. And then when you run the numbers, a third of production should be about four hundred thousand baseballs, or four hundred thousand usable baseballs. Let's call it that, because uh, Rawlings produces uh, one point two million balls for MLB use uh, every year. that's in, they're on the record with that number. The problem is that teams tend to put in an, an, um, I'm losing the name, it'll come to me. Yeah, so there was an article out last year, excuse me, in 2019 in The Athletic about baseball usage. And typically teams will put in advanced orders on baseballs, roughly 30,000 a team, which works out to 900,000 baseballs. So if you've removed 400,000 from your 1.2 million and you're left with 800,000 baseballs, that's a problem. And before you come in and say, oh, well, we had a shortened season because of COVID or something like that, the change happened at the beginning of January, 2020. And we didn't have any COVID-related changes to baseball till the end of February, beginning of March. So a lot of this is just, It doesn't make sense to me. you know. Even if they had found a way to not have these in games, they would have, had we not had a COVID shortened season, intended to run short by a lot. And so they would have had two kinds of baseballs regardless. And in 2019, they didn't use only 900,000, they ended up using more like 1.14 million. So that would have been a lot more extra baseballs that they would have had to track down. So where I'm going with this is it doesn't make sense. And
5: I I assume Major League Baseball has has not been helpful in your quest here. Fans have had to help you out, haven't they? A lot of people have had to help you. Me I mean, it's it's good that 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 someone is you know interested in this and helping because you know baseball has been very un uncooperative about all this. I think when when you were talking about the twenty twenty balls, what most stood out to me uh, is when you when you weighed the centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you had like forty some balls, and you had two completely different ranges of weight. I think it was like 126.7 to 128 and 124 to 125. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's to me a layman at, at the manufacturing process. I would imagine that if the balls had been the same, or at least the centers were constructed the same, you'd mm-hmm. probably see some vaguely normal curve with a center. But this would be, if you, if you graph that, it'd be like, a, it'd be a bimodal distribution. I, 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 well, assume. it's, a,
2: if you look at, if you look at the, um, I mean, bimodal, if you look at the graph that's in the article, That's the one that did look like my originals that we kept. So if we go back to production in June of 2019, which is when we started the actual manufacturing for 2020, and that looked the same as stuff going back to 2002. And then suddenly in September, the the center weight just changed completely. I mean, it's a dichotomy. There, there's no there's no fudge factor. There's no crossover. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about, my article refers to 2020 Ns and 2020 Ls for the two two types of baseballs. And the way that I've described it is that it's not like you have a ball that's sort of 2020 N or sort of 2020 L. It's not like there's something, it's not like there's a kind of shaft that's slow in the middle. There's just one and then the other the following week, or at least the following production week, better way to put it. Now now, one
5: thing I'm curious about I don't know if you really have if you if you necessarily have enough balls to do this, but from year to year, did you see any difference in the consistency between balls from the same period compared to consistency of the balls in the future like has have balls become more
2: consistent over time before we're even talking about the last couple of years? actually, that's what was interesting is that there's even the layers within the centers i mean the the the, the weights and the sizes have been comparable all along the weights have been a little bit higher recently they were high they were high in 2019 but still within spec and the thing is that as far as the separate layers within the center that stuff is just very very well controlled the um the centers each layer is wound on using you know a, a machine and then there is an actual automated weight trip so it's a mechanical you know, set up on the machine where when the ball gets to a certain weight while the layer is being wound on, the machine shuts off. So you're not relying on a human being to get that right. You have a human being check the weight to make sure that it's correct, but they don't make the decision to stop the machine. So that means that each layer is a very, very precise weight because of the way that they're put on so if you look at the different layers within the centers going back to 2002 they are very very similar Uh, there is a slight variation around maybe like 2000 i want to say six maybe eight where there's almost a shift between i want to say the middle layer and the inner layer but even that seems to be a gradual thing over time Uh, And it's just sort of a switch off between two layers while keeping the entire overall weight the same, (laughs) as opposed to this one where it's just like, and it changed and not only did it change, but one layer got three and a half grams lighter and another got one gram heavier. And, And those were again, remarkably precise. So it just certainly, as far as the Major League Baseball going back to 2000, there's nothing comparable.
5: Okay. Uh, uh, similarly uh, to baseball, have you been able to get a hold of any baseballs from Korea? Because it would be interesting to kind of contrast. Because I mean, Korea has generally been more open about the changes mm-hmm. to their ball than Major League Baseball has. Mm-hmm. So it might be interesting. I don't know if you've been able to do this yet, if you've been able to to get a hold of KBO baseballs, because that would be fascinating.
2: I did actually try before the 2020 season, before back when we didn't know if there were, we were gonna have one. And it just turns out to be difficult to, to track that stuff down. You know, I would still be open to it And It's my standard. You know, if, if anybody has baseballs, uh, KBO, in fact, any major league, you know, anything you wanna take off your hands, historic, I'm now looking at stuff going back into the eighties. Uh, so yeah, if people have KBO balls, I'd love to look, uh, but it's just, it's hard to to do that kind of inquiry, you know, across the Pacific. And my Korean is non-existent. But maybe someone will hear this and
5: they'll fly you out there to dissect the balls. And then you get a, a free trip. Uh,
2: I'm happy if they just ship the baseballs, frankly. Oh, OK. I, I think it's probably difficult to fly internationally right now. Well, I
5: mean, maybe in a future date. Cause I mean, anyway, you could get a free vacation. I mean, that's that's a, that's a nice <laughs> little perk. I've, I've never I've never been to South Korea. I'd love to go. It, it would never be fun. i never been either. But there's there's no reason for any of them to want me any anyone there to want me there, so that's that that's unfortunate.
2: Oh, you're you're uh, selling yourself short. I'm sure some there's somebody sad. who wants you there very badly. I don't know who, but there
5: must be someone. I I, I just want to try the ramen. Uh, Min Kim has, has has invited me, and so I'm like, I have to get over there. Like, well, oh,
2: see, he yeah. wants you over there. Yeah, so someone there is does. someone who wants you over there.
5: Uh, uh now, what chance do you think, based on the baseballs, uh, that that? They're disclosing now, late. Uh, what chance do you think we'll have a little bit less offense in 2021?
2: I have no idea. What my what my data found for 2020 were consistent with a mix of baseballs. And the balls that were changed uh, look like they actually have, even if their COR is lower, even if they come off the bat more slowly, even if their COR is lower, the change is enough where it does look like Like I said before, like the the drag has also gone down. And my data suggested that the lower drag might outweigh the lower COR, but it's going to take looking at next year's ball to know that. There's also, you know, even this year's data was hard to look at because it looked like the normal balls might have been slightly dead. I don't know. So I'm not actually sure. If anything, I would guess there might be the same or more. I'm not sure this ball it may be deadened technically according to like it coming off the bat more slowly but i also think it might be more lively in that it travels farther so i'm wondering i keep thinking of this as maybe this is an undead ball could we call this the zombie ball i like
5: you know? zombies are, are still culturally relevant right now yeah
2: i, I i'm good with the zombie ball
5: i, I like um, zombie let so me call it the juicy ball and that sounds a little dirt, vaguely no no no
2: because it's an well it's an undead ball at the very
5: least. Yeah, know. undead. Yeah, we
2: can call it undead, zombie,
5: same thing. I, I would like to see, you know, less offense in baseball because, I mean, home runs are kind of cheap right now.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you can't say any names because
5: that, that's going to be completely off the record, but have any players reached out to you and talk about the baseballs? Because a lot of pitchers have expressed, you know, a great deal of unhappiness. Justin Verlander, I know, is one of them. I would think that they would have a benefit for reaching out to someone who dissects the balls like you do.
2: I suppose the short answer to that is yes. Oh,
5: good. I'm I'm glad that that they're seeing it because you know, it's it's you know it's like going to talk to you know Emerald about New Orleans food or something. Mm-hmm. You you want to get right from the source. Yep. Uh, I mean, in,
2: in, even even before this, I've always found that, or even just from interviews that pe- other people do, I have learned more about the types of questions that need to be asked from what the players have to say than from what anything you know, anybody comes up with in some kind of a quantitative manner. If you actually wanna understand the physical, like makeup of the baseball itself, and this is, this is not a zing on you at all, Dan Zips is wonderful, <laughs> but something like, for instance, this height of the seams or the smoothness of the leather, the players know that. The players can talk about that in a way that can't show up in most of the data. You can find the effects, but you can't find things like the origins or, you know, there's just the players will tell you things that they're not going to it's not going to occur to you are important.
5: Well, it's useful. It gives you, you know, passive inquiry that you yes. might not normally have. I mean, Zips does what it does. I mean, but it's 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 database and and you don't always know because, I mean, you you know this, but I don't know if anyone everyone who's listening to this is, that, you know, there's an old saying about models that all models are flawed, but some are useful. Mm-hmm. And and really, there's 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 almost an art, a little bit of artistry to to designing a model because you don't get you don't press a button and find out what you're looking for, and that kind of discussions with players has for me it has also helped me find things. So I I, I totally see that. But mm-hmm. uh, let's let's say that MLB does a whole 180, and they say, Doctor Wills, we're gonna have a process now for baseballs. We're gonna make you the head of our commission, and you're going to make the process more transparent. What what do you think in like in this crazy scenario, like where would you start in in making baseballs equipment just more consistent, more transparent for the public and for the players? How how where would you begin to to kind of fix
2: this? How to address this? <laughs> I yeah, I know I gave you a, no, I gave you a no, difficult no. one. <laughs> Actually, I think the first thing that I would do is I would insist on the process being coordinated with some external body from MLB. If MLB personally asked me to do this, I would either say no, or we should bring in somebody else because it's just, I don't know, I, would, I want, I don't know, an arbiter, somebody looking over our shoulder. The other thing is when the original Home Run Committee was put together, and obviously, You know you fixate on what you know but in terms of looking at the balls themselves i was surprised that there there was not a player on the committee even a retired one which you would think someone like that would be able to contribute a lot of very valuable information and ultimately baseball manufacturing is manufacturing one of my most useful resources in this process has been somebody who actually inspects baseball factories and knows about other things as well you know other kinds of manufacturing and there was nobody with that knowledge on the committee either so probably were i in a position to independently do this you know bringing in a player or five bringing in people with manufacturing experience, bringing in people who are already doing this work. You know, the Lloyd Smiths of the world who are looking at at the things like the COR and the aerodynamics. Now there's Smith, Barton Smith would be great because of some of the work he's done. I realize I'm tagging people for a committee that doesn't exist and they have to get their agreements anyway. But maybe a broader range of knowledge and, also just knowing all of the aspects of the process and the why you know why are these why is this yarn used why are these layers the weights they are even if it's just a this is historically how we've done it that's at least an answer and it might merit another question of okay you know why are we using this blend of yarn or you know why? Why are you know? Why are the leather thicknesses all over the place? And I don't have a problem with them being like that. In fact, I prefer the baseball to be not all the same. People people find that surprising. It's like, no, actually, you know, a completely uniform baseball just isn't as interesting. It, yeah, it's but- okay that there's some variation. You just want a level of consistency in the basic production.
5: I think I could compare that too i i I'm a classical music buff because I've played piano uh mm-hmm. for for how old am I oh god thirty seven years I've been playing piano that's That's horrifying.
2: Don't think about it.
5: <laughs> I have twenty four different recordings of Robert schumann's piano concerto. It's all kind of the same basic concerto, but the interpretations are different. There is some variation, but you know there's a limit in the variation
2: there there's, that's a good analogy. I like that a lot.
5: I actually had a good analogy. Most of mine are crazy, but that, that's how I kind of see this. Uh, mm-hmm. The problem isn't that there's variation, that the, the manufacturing isn't perfect. It's that there's just too much volatility and too much uncertainty. I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the heart of the problem yeah. uh, as we get into it, because I'm not really sure why, why baseball necessarily thinks this is kind of a hostile thing, because in the end, this kind of thing, it would make their product better. It's it's not like we're we're, you know, legal rivals uh, in, a, in a court case going against each other to one person's convicting one person trying to get the other guy off. I mean, that's not what's going on here. So that that is what confuses me the most about this, because the more open baseball is because there's no nuclear secrets involved here, <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't think I mean. You, you might have found something pretty sketchy I, I going on. I have yet
2: to, to find any evidence of radiation, although I do not actually own a Geiger counter. <laughs> but it's possible. Actually, one thing, one thing that, and I need to find this, I know it's a Mark Twain short story. I do not remember the title. This came to mind the other day, which had to do, it was an analogy for some historical thing that I can't remember at all. I need to go back and read it. So having couched that with, this analogy will make no sense. The story related to a watch that the narrator had and him deciding it needed to be tweaked very slightly to improve how it told, told time. And the whole rest of the story goes on about how by by trying to tweak this watch very slightly, he ended up blowing the whole thing because he kept having to go back and forth and it messed other things up. And I was like, this story feels very familiar. It does. It it kind of reminds me of one of the Star Trek,
5: you know, time travel episodes where they mm-hmm. change one thing and then they have to fix it, and they they always they always figure it out in like forty minutes or one hundred and twenty minutes, depending on if it's a two parter or not.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> now, I, I I I can't let you get out of here without without getting an astrophysics question in there. Of course, uh, because your specialty, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is is solar astrophysics, isn't it? Yes. yes. Okay. Now you see. A lot of what I know about the sun comes from the They Might Be Giants song. Which, by the way, is
2: accurate and fabulous.
5: Yeah, because I mean, I know. So those are facts I know. Someone says, Dan, tell me about the sun. I'm like, well, the, the sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace.
2: And I actually, there is a book out there, which I own, that that is a direct quote from. They didn't oh. write that. They quoted it out of, like, it, it seems sort of a popular science book. From a number of years ago, well, I'm, I remember reading that line <laughs> and being like, "Okay, I know this. This is weird." <laughs> yeah. I, will, I won't sing it, but maybe if we're we the sun is a massive, massive yeah, so gas, gas
5: yeah. a gigantic nuclear um, furnace. Exactly. Maybe, maybe at a, at a saber convention, maybe we can find a karaoke bar that has that. <laughs> okay. The sun is hot. It's not a place. Now, now, when I one one question I have about the sun is there seems to be some some disagreement on this. That I've seen, but I haven't, you know, read all the papers because this isn't really my, my field by mm-hmm. any means. Okay, now, eventually the sun will become a, a red giant. Mm-hmm. Correct me when I've said something horribly wrong and mistaken, which is possible. That's correct. Okay, now, the, the belief is generally that, that the sun will, in fact, consume the Earth and it'll, the end result of, of the Earth will just be a slight change in the metallic blend of the sun at some point in the distant future. Now, one thing I'm curious about is: is there any chance that that the reduced gravity would let the Earth escape just a little bit, enough to survive, or is that just are we? Is that just it? I was
2: going to say, there's a, if you, if you want to destroy the Earth, there's a much better and 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 much sooner thing that the Sun's going to do to us. But um, but no, in that case, the joke is we will refer to it as the Y. The remember Y two K. I remember Y two K. This is the Y five B problem. Because in 5 billion years, the sun is going to expand to a red giant and engulf the Earth. The gravity will not actually change. Because oh, okay. the gravity just has to do with the total mass of the sun. So it's it's not, you know, not to mention the fact that compared to the Earth, the sun is so much more massive. And while you can see a red giant, as far as a red, when a red giant expands and engulfs the Earth, It is still going to be less dense than the best vacuum like you know the vacuum sealed rooms and stuff that we can build as human beings so it's not like it's gonna be a lot of stuff however it will incinerate us so oh i was i was
5: hoping Mm -hmm. our orbit would go out just enough that we could survive i mean not us personally It's it's gonna
2: expand well beyond
5: us anyway okay so there's there's no No. chance
2: but it's okay because because civilization or you know modern civilization is going to be destroyed by a a massive solar storm long long before that possibly in the next couple years i'm not actually exaggerating and so you know it's it's kind of a moot point
5: so we have to root maybe for like a uh, for the andromeda collision to kind of scoop us up and steal us perfectly or is that
2: can it happen before 2025
5: oh no i guess not
2: okay in which case, I, uh, I would just batten down the hatches and figure out how to live without electricity.
5: Okay, well, I thank you for answering my very layman's question about it, but <laughs> I, I, I couldn't resist the chance. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know a lot of astrophysicists, so I, I wanted to-, to Sure to, you do, you to, know me. To, oh, well, I mean, I, I don't know a lot. One isn't a lot. <laughs> if, if, someone sa- if, if someone said, Dan, have you been exercising this week? And I said, I've been exercising a lot, and I tell them I was exercising once, they would be very mad with me. Anyway, I I think we're almost out of time. Meredith, I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us. You can read Meredith's work. You know, you can follow her on Twitter, uh, the article. Hopefully we'll have a link below to the SI piece. You can pick it up in a newsstand with proper social distancing, of course. And thanks for joining us, everyone.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Welcome, baseball aficionados, to the third and final segment of this week's extended episode. Once again, I am David Larola. My guest is Derek Lu. Derek is a 37-year-old left-hander who you may or may not be familiar with, depending on on how much Mexican baseball you follow. <laughs> <laughs> Derek has played 15 professional seasons. Most recently, I believe it's five in Mexico. Is that correct?
4: Yes, I've played five winter ball seasons in Mexico.
3: And that is where you are speaking to us from today on on Wednesday. It's probably a little warmer there than it is where I am in uh, Massachusetts.
4: I can imagine. It's probably around 70 degrees here, perfectly sunny, beautiful day.
3: It's not bad, Derek. I I am quite (laughs) envious. Uh, I should mention, too, that Derek just pitched in the, well, would it be the Caribbean World Series or the the Caribbean World Series?
4: Uh, (laughs) Being here in Mexico, it's actually pronounced uh, La Serie de Caribe. So it's kind of a personal preference what you want to call the Caribbean or the Caribbean. But down here is the Caribe. So we're down here in the Serie Caribe.
3: And one of your teammates in the series was a 21-year-old Detroit Tigers infielder named, would, I guess it would be Isak Paredes, not, not that, Isaac.
4: That's correct. Uh, well, I mean, he, he, he goes by Isak here in Mexico. Yeah, I had a chance to talk to him just a little bit. Uh, We weren't teammates very long. We were both, he was a reinforcement uh, as well as I was to Team Mexico when uh, Culiacan won the championship. Uh, So I got a little chance to get to know him. Um, He's a good kid.
3: And a very talented baseball player based on his, his rookie season, his short rookie season. How did the pandemic, Derek, impact play down there
4: this year? Uh, Drastically different. At least half the teams uh, were not allowed to have any type of crowds at all at the games. And the other ones uh, were limited to a 30 or 40% capacity. I was fortunate enough to play in a place where at least we had some fans, even though it was not uh, the same atmosphere as it was in years past, uh, we were still able to have uh, some fan experience. I uh, didn't get a chance to talk to too many uh, to try to keep us uh, socially distant as possible, which is understandable. But definitely a, a different feel. I want to say a spring training vibe, but definitely didn't have that uh, that energy level that uh, Latin American baseball brings.
3: Yeah, we should jump back back to names. I believe that you're not Derek to everybody down there.
4: I, it's <laughs> uh, being uh, having a very, uh, I guess, American or English name is. Very difficult to talk to somebody who doesn't know me and try to pronounce my name. I get I get a lot of Jerry and Eric. Hola, I am, soy Derek Loop. Ma- Monday, Jerry, Jerry? No, Derek. Oh, Eric. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's it's pretty standard down here. Um, I've gotten to to the point where I just kind of go with my last name because Loop is a lot easier to pronounce than Derek.
3: And of course, uh, you know. Caribbean, Caribbean. Yes. Uh, what What is the whole the whole format like there? Because uh, unless I'm mistaken, you played for Mexico and then briefly for the Dominican Republic.
4: Yes. So how it works in, uh, in winter baseball? Uh, if If you play any any game in the regular season for a certain league, whether it's Dominican, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, or Mexico, you are able to play for that team in the Caribbean Series. So what happened with me is I played for a team all season in Mexico. When it came down to playoff time, they didn't have enough uh, import or extra narrow spots on the roster for me, so I had the opportunity to go play in the postseason in the Dominican Republic. My team ended up losing in the finals, but had they won, I could not have joined the Dominican Republic team in the Caribbean Series because I did not play for them in the regular season. However, when I returned back to Mexico, my uh, the team that I played for ended up winning the championship, and they contacted me and said, "Hey, we still want you to come play for us in the Caribbean Series," where I was picked up as a reinforcement to play for Team Mexico.
3: And because of that, you had an opportunity to, to uh, give up a gopher to Robinson Cano. <laughs> uh,
4: yes, one that I've, I I guess I demonstrated that or displayed that on my social media, kind of as a joke, because it obviously it's Robinson Cano of all hitters anyway, but I also gave him a cookie curveball right down the middle. I had, I had him to two strikes. I threw him a really good slider to get ahead of him. Uh, he felled off a, a sinking fastball inside, and I was trying to bury a curveball to put him away. Uh, what I thought was going to put him away, and I just hung it right on the middle. And, I mean, it didn't take a Robinson Cano to hit that ball to the ballpark, but definitely uh, a memorable experience. Not Obviously, not necessarily one that I would have liked to repeat, but definitely uh, made my rounds on social media, a lot of different places, uh, a lot of people, a lot of friends sending me uh, random uh, links and uh, videos to the same home run that I posted on my social media as
3: well. Yeah, there is no shame in giving up home runs to players like <laughs> Robinson Cano, trust me. <laughs> Yeah, so Derek, you first started playing in the Mexican League. Is it 2016? I believe.
4: Yeah, the winter of 2016. Yes.
3: Yes. How did that come about?
4: So, like anything in or anything in any job, it's a, it's a lot about connections and who you know. For me, I I was throwing the ball really well on my independent ball team in uh, Sugarland, Texas, with the Skeeters and Sugarland, and my bullpen coach uh, was a Puerto Rican guy who knew the manager in Kulikon that year, who was uh, Lino Rivera, who's a fellow Puerto Rican. And he said, hey, uh, you got to have this guy, Loop, come play for you. And through that connection, uh, the GM from Kulikon reached out to me, and uh, we uh, came to an an agreement. And I went down there, and uh, the rest is history, if you want to say that. I I, I threw the ball fantastic my first year, and I've kind of snowballed that into a, a little bit of a career down here in Mexico.
3: And you had been playing winter ball for a good many years as
4: well. I've had experiences in Dominican Republic and Venezuela back in 2010 and 2012, so I wasn't unfamiliar with how uh, winter ball worked. Uh, the, the experiences of winter ball from 2012 until I got there in 2016, I had a, a hiatus. I didn't. I wasn't invited back to play anywhere, and uh, I was gr- grinding in the uh, the indie leagues, if you want to call that. But uh, uh, really grateful I got the. The opportunity and of trying to take full advantage of that still
3: and we of course uh first met when you were playing in the red sox system before you came to the red sox you were actually playing indie ball so you went indie ball to affiliated ball back to indie but your initial stint which i believe is 2007 you were with the chico outlaws and daniel nava was one of your teammates
4: yes uh, that, that... That is such a great story just from him going from being my indie ball teammate, hitting 367, leading the league in homers, I believe, switch hitting left-handed outfielder who had obviously way more talent than belonged in uh, indie ball. So to him to get signed like that and then for us to play together after I got picked up by the Red Sox to be teammates for a couple of years afterwards to him hitting the first pitch, uh, it was a grand slam, I believe off of uh, Joe Blanton. just an amazing thing to be a part of in that small, that small piece of his story.
3: Now I remember that well. For full disclosure, I actually saw that in a bar, That's <laughs> and awesome. uh, and having already spoken to Nava a few times through the miners, I was I was quite thrilled. I think I I maybe toasted a few people people in in, in the bar. So you then went and played in, in Lancaster, California, of course, with Daniel and I believe Josh Reddick, maybe Lars Anderson, Ryan oh, yes. I did look this up. You only gave up two home runs in 50-some innings. And if anybody <laughs> has watched baseball at Lancaster, that was quite defeat.
4: Oh, what a, what a joke that played. This is, this is not an exaggeration. I definitely saw a right-handed hitter hit a fly ball to right field where the second baseman thought he was going back for a, a long pop fly behind second base and it left the ballpark
3: there is a lot of wind at lancaster i understand a great it, jet. it, it,
4: it, it howls at a right field it's, it's just a, it's a jet stream a right field i've seen left our uh, right-handed batters hook balls foul down the left field line that blow back fair you watch them hook foul and they see the ball come back and blow back fair incredible and only
3: giving up two bombs at lancaster is not your claim of fame in affiliated ball <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know what's coming yes this is very impressive and i actually wrote about this at fangrass a few years back when you pitched for Salem in the Carolina League, you had how many pickoffs in seventy-one
4: innings? I had seventeen pickoffs,
3: which is unreal. Was it a Bach move, Derek?
4: Honest, and I, if I'm if I'm being one hundred percent honest, I tried to make it as look as much as possible like I was going home. My entire lower half would go to first base right on that 45 degree line. It wasn't a thing where I shifted forward and then went to first where guys would see my momentum going to home and then shift back to first base. It was one of those things where I, I towed that 45 degree, that 45 degree line as much as I possibly could with my lower half while trying to make my entire upper half completely squared to home, just so I can get that last little second flick to first base. I didn't try to throw it hundred miles an hour. I didn't try to, to trick them any other way other than the fact that make it look like I was going home. And I would say, Seventy-five percent of my pickoffs were guys taking their secondary lead towards second base. It wasn't good. them diving back to first for them watching. They were they were looking home, waiting for the ball across home plate when they see the ball pass by their vision going to the first baseman.
3: So I think the answer is it sometimes was a balk and sometimes maybe it was not. I mean, it, it,
4: I mean, it really. It, well, I guess the 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 uh, advantage I had is when you're playing in high A baseball like that, there's only two umpires. So there was not a, a dedicated umpire at first base watching from that angle. Now, I, I definitely had some a few pickoffs at the higher level uh, with the guys at first base, but they're just smarter runners at that point. So I didn't have as many pickoffs when they find out that I have a good pickoff move. A lot of them shut it down in that sense. So I guess it, it played to my advantage. Even I wasn't picking guys off. I kept was keeping guys close regardless.
3: And you were not purposely falling behind hitters to use your pickoff move.
4: Oh, I absolutely was. I was definitely throwing ball one to set up my, I, I'd have my perfect thing. I'd do my my terrible pickoff move, and then I'd do my, my good leg lift pickoff move. And if I didn't get him with that one, I was going to slide step a pitch ball, ball one home, so I could slide step, pick the guy off, and I, I that worked, I mean, like clockwork. If it was a new guy or a team that didn't really know me very well, it worked every single time. I mean, with 17, with 17 pickoffs, it, it worked plenty. <laughs>
3: in the Carolina League, you did pitch in Double A. You of course pitched in Triple A, I believe, for a full season. There has yes. to be a certain amount of frustration to have never gotten a big
4: league call up. 100. percent And uh, I can give this. I can give you a little rundown from the Dodgers. I played the Dodgers in 2012. Had a great year. Threw the ball fantastic. Uh, velocity was good for the time being. It's not 100 miles an hour like they're expecting from every guy now. But threw the ball great. I was a long reliever, then I turned into a starter. I went uh, 11 and four with a 4-8 in Albuquerque, and I had two starts. Two starts that really that met, jacked me up. I without those two starts, I would have had a sub four ERA. So I threw the ball really well, especially if anybody knows anything about the uh, the PCL and playing in Albuquerque and places like that. I uh, talked to um, a guy, I'm not going to call him out, but he, he. I talked to somebody, part of the organization, after that season, and he was talking to me. He goes, I can tell you this now because you're not with us, but you were literally a day or two away from getting called the big leagues. But we ended up signing Randy Choate, and we did not need you anymore after that point. So you, we were grooming you to get up there. You were, you were a day or two away. Your bags were almost packed, and then we went and signed Randy Choate and didn't need a guy like you anymore. So if
3: Randy Choate listens to Fangrass audio and he is hearing this, Randy, know that this is your fault. That you ruined. <laughs> uh, that you, you ruined, ruined, ruined Derek's my career,
4: Yeah, you ruined my career, Randy. No, not at all. It's part of baseball. I understand that. It was awesome to hear that and really frustrating to hear that at, at the same time because I never got, I never even got a spring training invite after that season, which was, was still blows my mind to this day. I still don't understand how that works or what happened or if it was something with my agent or if, any, if it was something personal that somebody felt towards me or there's something else I had done. I don't think that it was, but I mean, baseball is a crazy game.
3: It very much is, and we just have time for a few more questions, Derek. Sure. But I believe you also uh, experienced a different culture in Japan for a bit.
4: I did. I, I went and played some indie ball in Japan, trying to get the the attention of Japanese major league teams to try to. I was, I mean, playing in Mexico and doing all these winter ball things. I, I'm definitely open to new cultures and trying new things. I'm not. I, I'm not a homebody where I need to, to be somewhere comfortable and. That was a great life experience, great cultural experience, one of the worst baseball experiences of my life.
3: So. And you have told me about this. You should say a little bit for the listeners.
4: It was so frustrating. Uh, you're playing with what, I mean, you're, we're talking about indie, indie ball in Japan. So we're talking about Japanese indie ball players, which, I mean, there's good baseball in Japan. I played against a couple of minor league teams. They were pretty good. In 111 innings, I gave up 75 hits and of those 75 hits about 40 of them were ground balls in the infield where my infielders were not good enough to throw the ball to first base in time for the runners to be out at first before they can run it out so playing that part of it and then uh, playing on all dirt fields with all dirt mounds with no clay and pitching in a hole uh, it was it was a it was a tough situation where you're playing three games a week and the other four days you're practicing for 4 to 6 hours a day so yeah
3: <laughs> and you and you realistically can't speak a lot about the fan experience in Japan as you didn't play at the highest level. Correct. But but you have played, of course, in the Dominican, Venezuela, and a lot of Mexico. What is the fan experience like?
4: Oh, you you haven't experienced baseball. I mean, unless you've been to you know playoff or World Series games, I'm sure that that's pretty electric energy. I, I have not experienced that personally, but there is no energy like like latin winter ball energy baseball when you're in coolie we have a stadium that holds twenty thousand, and we're averaging 15 to twenty thousand a night every single night during a, a normal season so to have that energy where people are there and they're excited for every pitch they're there to watch baseball they're not there bringing their families and having the kids go play in the outfield where there's possibly like a playground or something like that people are there for baseball and they're passionate about their team and they're and and they're there to watch us win every single game so there's a, a, a different type of energy when there's 20,000 people drinking until the ninth inning is over, which you know now alcohol affects people and you know their rowdiness. Um, it was never, never a, a dangerous situation by any means, but just the the passion and and the ferocity they have for their team when we're out there from pitch one to literally the last pitch of the game. That if the game's four hours, you'll still see eighty percent of the people there for the four hour game.
3: So one last thing, Derek. Uh, at thirty-seven years old, the number of bullets you have in your left in your arm probably we're slowly coming toward the end. Sure. Given given all of the experience you have with different baseball cultures, can you see yourself, or do you see yourself staying in the game on one continent or another?
4: You no, know, I, I I love this game, and it's it's been my my passion for the vast majority of my life. Uh, definitely my entire career. As far as being a, a coach. I'm not sold on that because of how much I love playing. It would be really tough, even at 37 or 40, whenever I'm done playing, it would be really tough for me to be like that daily travel minor league coach. I think I would definitely love to be a part of baseball in a front office situation where I'm still a part of the game, but I I still have a little more stability and I'm not uh, doing the the minor league travel and that kind of thing, or even scouting. Being a, a guy that did not have a lot of talent growing up and had to work hard for everything that he accomplished and... I'm still trying to. they never reach that highest level, but seeing seeing the type of talent I've seen and guys that do do make it and don't make it, and and the work I think required from the guys that do have or don't have the talent, I think that that is something that would interest me after after I'm done playing, whenever that decides to be.
3: And you are, of course, bilingual.
4: Yes, I speak. I I would like to say that I'm fluent Spanish. I don't speak perfectly, but I I speak I speak pretty damn well considering. <laughs> pretty damn well. <laughs>
3: Derek, thank you very much for your time. Once again, I am David Lorela, and as always, thank you for listening to Fangraphs Audio.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program and you want to give back, or if you want to check out Dark Mode for yourself, consider an ad-free membership in the Fangraphs.com store. We will be back next week with a special episode of the show for you. Until then, have a good weekend.